Tea, toast and tactics. Sick of strategy? Let's have a brew and get into the tactical detail. Informal chats with practitioners. This week on Tea, Toast and Tactics, we're discussing how to destroy modern armour. I interview two members of Free Paras Anti-Tank Platoon to talk about defensive aid suites, the best way to use the anti-tank platoon, and some of the future capabilities that might be available to the British Army over the coming years. Hope you enjoy it. We start with equal months, but how's your career been so far and what's led you to where you are today? Okay, yeah, so in anti-tanks, I've done a Herrick 13 with Rife Company and then I spent the remainder like last 10 years with anti-tank platoon. I've been, now I'm a deck commander. Quite often I do a lot of the work as a FSG training crews to become drivers previously for the Jackals and now onto the R-Wimic platforms. And and then also working to develop like the AFE understanding within the platoon. Cool. There's a few. So some of our listeners will be students and will be people not in the military. So we might want to explain a couple of those three-letter abbreviations. Okay. Yeah. So FSG is the fire support group uh, that is working with weapon platforms, utilising those to get our weapon systems from around the battlefield. And then you've also got the AFE, which is armoured fighting vehicles. And so you use like AFE for the terminology, just to say recognising vehicles, you, you use a term AFE. And that's how that's used. Cool. All right. And Spence. So I'm Spence. I've been in since 2009. I was lucky enough to come straight from uh, training depot, straight into platoon. This is the bolster up numbers for Herrick 13, as I had a year before we deployed. Quite a senior platoon, the support company, with some big heavy guys. So I had to learn pretty quickly. I've been in the platoon ever since then. I've went through more of the anti-tank career courses you do. So detachment commanders, like Corporal Munch has done, and then section commanders, which is the sergeant sort of qualification. The reason why in the platoon we work as a one-up is a responsibility. Clearly, we're going to be engaging armour, and not everyone wants to be in that position. So give us a bit more money and more responsibility, we're more likely to do it. I have been to depot, so training the power recruits. I did that for a year alongside the sort of section commander's battle course in Brecon. That was quite interesting. And funny enough, that was I was the one of the first ones to start implementing NLAW, which is the next generation light anti-tank weapon, which is coming in up into training establishments. So I was heavily pushing it up there. That's pretty much it. Also, like uh, like couple of months has done, I've been the same route. I've done the driving maintenance instructor for mobility side of things on the Jackal platform, not the Arwimic like himself, uh, and also AFE recognition. I found that was a niche sort of part of me, which the, the pest inside me wanted to really do it, or a spotter. So I took that on, on my stride, and I think that it's been quite infectious with like, like months. We want everyone to be a bit bit spotterish so we know the capabilities that we're going to be up against. And I find that generally, and how I find it is that people are quite ignorant to it. However, if we're in this job role, we're going to be good at that job. Uh, and that's knowing how many wheels T-55's got. We'll, we'll be there, that's going to be it. So you both went on Herrick 13, and apologies, both in the anti-tank platoon on 13. Is that correct? I was. Corporal Munns wasn't. Uh, rifle companies at that time. Okay. So in that conflict, we used anti-tanks in a very different way to the way that we're going to talk about today. What do you guys think about that? When we deployed, clearly there was no armour threat 
at the time on Herrick 13. If not, it would just be a, a technical vehicle. So we were more deployed as rifle company multiple, so just a, sh- a small platoon, mainly as a fire support group on the ground. But we had the su- support weapons there. We had the javelin and the, the clue, the command launch unit, which is the, the surveillance aid that we have. And I find that that's what we were mainly used as to set up an observation with the thermal imagery that we can use. But from now, it is a bit different. Just for, for context, for other people who will be listening, we've three power have just come back from a scary storm in, in Kenya. How did you? How were you employed there? So, so the, the, the pair of us were actually, we didn't deploy because we were on readiness. So we stayed back here in the United Kingdom. We went to, went to Brecon instead to do our sort oh, of cool. And we were mobility for that 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 exercise so we weren't ground mount we still had the capability but we had the the r wimics as it was which offers a lot more versatility i suppose having the having the r wimics yeah i guess i can jump in here a little bit yeah 100 percent with the we need to start thinking about actually using the r wimics as a not as an armored vehicle ourselves be thinking about it as a weapons platform by a weapons platform we, we literally mean something to move the weapon system to exactly where it needs to be as quickly as possible Exactly. So once we've hit the ground from the very first instant, you, the biggest weapon systems that you're going to have on the ground is going to be those 50 cows, GMGs, and it's also going to be your mortars and so forth. And we need to make sure that we can get our 50 cows and GMGs to the relevant positions where needed and also be able to remove all its ammunition along with it. Uh, so it just massively improves the amount of firepower that you've got on the ground rather than just having their company weapons from the exercise when we've done it a lot of the a lot of the normally rifle company ocs or sergeant majors don't really know how to use us like you said you you haven't really uh, been support company so they kind of kind of stick stick to what they know and fight that battle from 300 meters to 800 meters from the weapon systems that you've got however if we are supporting uh, the rifle company if we're mobility we can move about that battlefield and use our range which really with the javelin, it's 2.5 kilometres. So we can get good eyes on and be able to talk you in. So that was a key thing that came out from that last exercise, is the mobility, and especially for anti-tanking, because armour and other vehicles can move quicker than on the ground, clearly. Uh, we can be proactive and actually get there before any, anyone and saturate a whole area, depending on the threat. And of course, that, that mobility and that range is something that we should be caring an awful lot more about as, as we move into contingency and potentially a very different type of conflict conflict to the last one we fought and of course once you were you were talking about that briefly yes yeah, so basically the way that armed conflict is going at the moment is a lot more mechanized if you look at all other armed forces and it and it is for ourselves you can obviously carry a lot more firepower and you can get that about on a vehicle platform and and that's the direction that i think that we need to be focusing a little bit more how to make those vehicles as uh, more air portable and also how to like best get those to the ground uh, and how best to utilize those once they've hit the ground as well and and just trying to then use those in relation to the rifle companies as well now might be a good time, I think, to talk about how conflict's broken down the three different aggressors that you talked about. So, I mean, like my, my mindset is we've got basically three forms of conflicts. You've got the non-government organisations, which is like your militias or ISIS, and you've got those, that, that is like one end of the spectrum. Then you've got your government-organised adversaries, which could be any other government that could perform like a threat against us. And then you've got that middle ground as well now, which is the government-organised, non-government organisations, which is kind of going 
on in Ukraine, for example. So my mindset is that we need to be training more for that government organised threat and, and working towards what they've got. Now, if you have a little look at what's going on in in the world, it's all going very mechanised and the armoured threat is getting very, very high in relation to other types of warfare. So this is why we need to be taking a bit more weight into anti-tanking and understanding why it is so important to have a good anti-tank assets available and utilising those effectively. And especially airborne troops, we need to be able to get our blokes in around that battlefield, get right uh, to those spaces where we can be best used and then create those screens where 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 needed and then dragging those fights to where we dictate rather than the enemy dictating where to have them what do you think about that spence i i i really intrigued of actually what's happened in ukraine with the fact that how they were faced with modern tanks they'd had modern tanks t72b freeze and in some cases t90s which were overpowering everything now the ukrainians clearly didn't have that much of effect and their only other anti-tank stuff was the tank as as many things so on the smaller scale they didn't have the the new tandem warhead anti-tank weapons that we have all right they still had this only single one and with the capabilities that these new armor the new armor had it has got this explosive reactive armor through the def- defense aid suites defensive aid suites and they couldn't they couldn't counter that but definitely on the early side of things mobility is a, a big big thing to move about the battlefield to withdraw to different positions and also to outflank them as well. So it's interesting, we started talking a little bit about the, the difference in capabilities that the modern armour has compared to compared to what we dealt with in the, in the last conflicts. Or compared to what we had to deal with in the Gulf War, what did the the Iraqi army have? T-74s? I, think that's, I don't yeah. know much about tanks. T-72s, definitely without explosive reactive armour and definitely without defensive aid suites, though. So there's a, there's a big difference. But how much of a difference does going up against a tank with a defensive aid suite make? It's all defensive aid suites, that could be from... It's broken down into two tanks, so you have a, a soft, kill, soft kill capability, which means that the, the, the tank or the, the, the vehicle will have some form of device on that that will be able to disrupt the, the flight path or any lock-on from that munition that's going to get it. So it will defeat it through non-lethal means, which is good in respects that the armour who's been engaged can still have dismounts around them. So uh, a mechanised infantry, you'd see they'd have guys all around them. However, that's good for anti-tank weapons that give off signatures so that are laser uh, riding or radar riding, like the old um, Russian sort of Soviet-style anti-tank weapons. But then you've got another one called hard kill. Now, hard kill is obviously a lethal means to destroy it. With that, then, you, you potentially, if they have got dismounts around them, they may injure them. So especially on the side of uh, the Russian, so Arena, their new one now, that works in both hard kill and soft kill which is, has been used in Ukraine with some of the reports and open source information you can get. That's the two sort of main defense, uh, defensive aid suites. Another one is then ERA, or Explosive Reactive Armour. Different types of generations, from Contact 1 to Contact 5 to the new stuff called Relic, and the next one is called... Nelson uh, Duplet. Yeah, M- Malachit as well, which is Explosive Reactive Armour, and that's going to be on the new Namata. Really, 
they are really effective against ammunition that does not have a, a tandem charge. All right, so it can't punch through the first layer of explosive reactive armour. It will defeat it. And you would have seen them in Afghanistan when we've used the, the bar armour, cage armour. That is pretty much to the to disrupt that shaped charge from the anti-tank weapon. Uh, it dissipates it beforehand. This is the same thing, but it's up against other armour and more um, advanced weapon systems. So they just slap on a load of explosive reactive armour on it to deflect that main charge. However, the javelin can still defeat through that due to having a tandem warhead. Like other sort of anti-tank weapons nowadays, they're all picking it up. Say that, that, yeah, sorry, go. I was going to say, that, so the, ta- the tandem warhead, that defeats the, the current ERA, as you explained yeah. it. But the defensive aid suite, so first of all, spoofing, then how do we get around that? So with the Javelin, it's a passive weapon system. And usually of other weapon systems, like the AT series, what the Russians use, so AT5 is one of them, they give off some form of signature, be that laser riding or radar riding. So when that's just the same as on aircraft, they know that when they're being engaged by SAM, the the countermeasures crack in. However, with the Javelin, it doesn't work that way. It works off. It just picks up thermal points on that vehicle, and it usually comes in from the top, so we can fire it on direct attack. And the way we get around that then through the defensive aid suites is that we come in above from the likelihood of where they're going to be hitting from. Because you need to remember, a tank isn't always out there just just to look for anti-tank weapon systems, okay? Their main threat is other tanks and their own weapon system. So you think the Soviet-era style stuff, it was mass-produced, mass pushed out like that, and lots of blueprints were based on them weapon systems. So the majority of anti-tank weapons come in from the side or just a metre above the tank to try and achieve that top attack kill, whereas there's, a, there's very few them um, from land fire that will come in from uh, the top, which we still run off. As a, as a light roll airborne unit, your, cam- your anti-tank capability is in law, javelin yeah. pretty much on an air if we've got it however if we are dealing with that side of things over in the eastern block they've got a uh, really sophisticated anti-air capability haven't they let's talk about soviet era tanks then how capable are they the best t72 like upgraded is is better than the like least upgraded t90s you know, as in, like, that, that's almost, like, how much of a difference. When you start adding the defence aid suites and the latest DRA on them, they, you know, massively starts improving their survivability. It's exactly that, Brian, yeah. It's the, the scary fact of the, the fire control system that they've got. Now, they, they, they talk about, you know, we'd have to stop and fire our GMGs because we're not stabilised. We don't have any of that. Whereas the Russians, that on their new vehicles, they've got an advanced fire control system, so they can fire on the move mm. and they can track a target. And still cover that ground, which means like yeah. us for anti-tankers for us, majority of the time you'd get rolled up, and then mm. our minimum, our minimum range would be sixty-five meters. That's it. That's what we've got. And as soon as they're on top of you, there's nothing you can do. Which then goes into the the stuff that I'm trying to in- implement now is old school in close anti-tank tactics, which yeah. by World War Two all through that side of thing, which we want to try yeah. and do. and especially as paratroopers as well, not just to look at doctrine, yes, but then go. Hang on here. What else can we use here? Mm-hmm. Well, our special environment, urban. Use all sorts of stuff we can use within that environment to counter mobile. You know. 
Yeah, especially if we're going up against armoured columns, for example. If you're going up against armoured columns, we're going to have to make it more of a Grozny-type situation where we are bringing that fight into an urban environment where we can actually do have a far greater effect in great numbers. But if you're going up against, say, a militia, for example, as in like a terrorist, and you want to have that standoff off the 2.5K because you know that they're not going to be, one, trade enough, good enough to use their armoured vehicles or they're not going to have like the capability on those armoured vehicles. So, you, so you'd much rather have that dispersion and fight out in the open so the tactics that you employ is massively going to change depending on the enemy that you're fighting you know and if you are going up against massive amounts of armored column and you need to slow that down you want to be dragging that right in my opinion into the urban environment so that you can have as big effects and slow down the enemy as much as possible yeah. that's something that i think we need to be thinking out not applying the one sort of doctrine to like all enemy we need to be thinking what's for enemy what what do they have and what have we got for example right we've got we've got this pandemic goes on an economic crisis happens and then like world war three kicks off uh, and then you've got russia and china they decide that they want to bring armed columns through europe using that yeah d- defense assets and they want to literally roll armor through europe the only way that you're going to want to try and slow that down is by dragging it into the urban environment and and try and stem and then and then try and utilize that rather than having a big big open fields in the open because we get wiped out just purely due to the the way our numbers work compared to like how they'd work that's that's my opinion yeah you think our arm is, is going to move they're not just going to go back in the old school across the across the, the plains of Russia, you know, they're just going to roll it over, the, like, as we see, a big, large column. They won't do that. They're, they're smart. They'll use, the tanks use ground all the time. They use valleys, they use the ground, high, mask. They can't mask their, the sound they make, so that's why mm-hmm. they're very loud anyway, but they use the valleys in that to sort of project their sound all over the shot, and they can move through. And then when, especially with the urban environment, they're not going to just go in to the urban environment. Once as mentioned, with Grozny, they went in there with the T-80Us, and they got smashed by... Yeah. Guys cutting about with PKMs, RPGs, and uh, different variants of RPG. Really low-cost weapon systems as well. And destroying exactly. uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars worth of equipment for, for nothing. Just using uh, smart tactics and a bit of goal about them, you know? A bit of savvy. And I think that brings it back to our sort of situation as airborne forces pushed in there, out on a limb. Supply chain's going to be non-existent, really, and we're going to go in with what we've got. So we need to be smart and use exactly what we can. If that means using weapon, different weapon systems, for foreign weapon systems, anti-tank side of things, and also figuring out what, how can we make some form of a tank weapon. In close anti-tank tactics is the main thing in the environment. The Javelin, remember, we're, our main aim is to get as much standards as we can. So we could do that on the extremity of the, um, or the fringes of the city or town or where we're going to be, preventing them from punching in or ha- hampering them or channeling them into an area that we want them to go. So we can do that, just like in, just like in Grozny, you know. But then all the anti-tanking side of things should be done by the infantry, the paratrooper on the ground, low-level stuff. Close. They've got the weapon system, the in-law, granted. There's other weapon systems out there that defence could get, that could have some form of capability. You look at the, the new Carl Gustav M4. It's a lightweight, uh, recoilless rifle. And the munitions, there's, there's, there's tons, there's tens of uh, munitions that you can use with all different purposes. Be able to breach through compounds, or you can use it for tandem warheads as well. Absolutely fantastic illumination. So there's there's another big thing, and I think other specialist units are starting to uh, use that now uh, with the, the sort of threats out there, especially with ISIS out in the Middle East. 
it's starting to bring that back. But especially for uh, paratroopers, you need to have that. And it's a rough weapon system. But with the, the rifle companies, so the guys on the ground, they need to have... They need to hold their own, really, and not rely on the the bigger scale because we want to be pushed, looking out way ahead of the of the the battle, rather than being stuck there. Because then our survivability, which is one of the main things we need to have, gone to the days of life of an anti tank is eight seconds because we're stuck behind the missile trailing it. Or can be yeah. proactive and use that, but. Uh, yeah. Especially in that, especially the Grozny is a really good one to look at, yeah. and how other units em- employ their anti-tank capability. A lot of the time now, it's moving towards a sort of guerrilla kind of warfare, small groups with this, a different array of weapon systems. So, say like a sharpshooter, a 7.62 gun, or, or or heavier, and then an anti-tank weapon. One of the things that we could like be looking at is things like uh, masking the shot, as in like masking the shot of the round. Sorry, shot of the missile with utilizing indirect fire along with like putting in actual missiles in the air at the same time in mm. order to, so we can give that survivability to the blokes that are in that direct fire role. And so that's like the things that we could be looking at. Anything to touch on that, Ryan? I think it's integrating all the other assets, like you've just said, they're using mortars, definitely. Mm. If you can use mortars that are integral and organic to the battalion that you've got, especially being paratroopers, we, we have to use them. Setting them on different uh, firing, uh, the way they, way they land, you can use delayed, super quick, proxy high, proxy low. Them two mean that one will, uh, will detonate, uh, I think it's 10 metres above the ground or something, just to try and mask exactly like you said there, to confuse them so they don't know exactly what's happened. So they think that they've just been hit with artillery or something, all right? But definitely using what you've got. And then if we've got the bigger scale, if we're working uh, with other, if we've got different assets, air, that's another thing that we can use as well. But we've got majority of the time, if we're going to be doing anything regarding anti-tanking, a lot of the time they're going to have dismounts or some form of vehicle, uh, an infantry fighting vehicle, that's going to have guys in there who can push out and then clear a certain area or suspected that of us. That's why standoff is absolutely key when it comes to anti-tanking. So having that distance away from that area is going to help your survivability. And then having a means of getting out of there as well and seeing the effect. Yeah. So mixing in the the other assets is that just just to make it more difficult to find the anti tank assets, or are you mixing those in to also try and have an effect to, to knock bits of defensive aid suites off a vehicle? Is is that important? Yeah, definitely to have an effect as well. You know, you remember the case of if they are hatches up. I'll let Brian touch on that after it but regarding the defence suites. If they're hatches up and they're outside their vehicles, then they're going to get a slice as well. But that's a combined assault. If you, it's a standard ambush thing. Everyone knows it. Hit the first vehicle, hit the rear vehicle, and then work your way in and up. All right. Now, if you did that, you hit the front vehicle, and then you you smash in a load of mortars or IDF in. It's going to have a hideous effect. You might just have a column of heavily armoured main battle tanks with explosive reactive armour, relic the lot, but then they'll be accompanied by smaller vehicles as well, BMP or something similar, which isn't going to have a lot of armour on there, and it will it, it will have an effect. If you saturate that that killing area with artillery or whatever you've got, it's going to have some form of effect. And think of the psychological effect it's going to have on them as well. If the if if lead vehicle's been taken out, completely halt, they try to react to it, they won't be able to, depending what who you're up against. If you're up against conscripts, the, uh, the flight might kick in and that'll be it. You've, uh, you've achieved your aim, all right? But um, definitely having that overwhelming effect as well. Well, I, I think there's definitely a lot to be said about the 
psychological effect, particularly so if you're facing an enemy that has an awful lot of faith in a very expensive new bits of equipment, mm-hmm. like a T90 covered in defensive aid suites, and you destroy one of those, that's going to have an impact, I think, on the morale of a, of a group. Big time. And that, yeah. Uh, just like if there is a, a command element vehicle, that is the most spruced up one they've got. They're going to think that yeah. that's the, the, the Hercules there, and then he gets taken out then the, the whole fight or flight sort of situation might come in and it, it stops their momentum. And that's a big thing when it comes to comes to armour and vehicles moving, they rely on that momentum to push forward. Even if they've been engaged, the way they react, so they just want to likely areas or push through or get to the other side or get out of there. They want to get rid of that momentum. That's what we want to achieve, get rid of that momentum. Make them stall so we can take them all out. But yeah, because yeah, especially with those vehicles, you're probably going to see those intermixed. So you'd have like one of those vehicles with the defense aid suites, like with the, the most latest ones, like the Arena, for example. And that, that costs like 10 times as much as just the, the, the Billy Basic stuff. So what you want to be doing is taking out those key assets. But one thing that we can think about that Ryan's already alluded to is the hatches up. So the chances are we've seen in, in Ukraine that the defence aid suites potentially could be disengaged when the hatches are up and they're up out of the position because they don't want to obviously hit hit themselves if an incoming projectile comes in or is in or if the defence aid suites activate accidentally for whatever reason and they don't catch frag on themselves. So when the hatches are up and they're outside of their turret, out the commander's post out the top, then they that potentially could be a good time to actually hit that target if you if you've got that surprise uh, so it's little things like that that we can think about when engaging the enemy and that that tied in taking out those key assets those those ones with those defense aid suites like the latest t90s and, and then that means that then after you can do a lot more of a mop-up after taking over the less defended armored vehicles after you've taken out the key key assets, I'll I'll follow up on that one with the the, the hatches up and that there's an instance yeah. as well you can find it it's on a on a on the internet the Syrian opposition the Free Syrian Army they had the the tool so the tool which is the tube tube launched optically tracked wire guided missile just an American big anti tank weapon system so the operator would get his, his crosshairs on the the vehicle and then fire the missile and track it all the way till it hits it. So there was an. It's happened before. So they, they were they struck a T90, a Syrian T90. There's a video of it as well. But the the crew escape. Obviously, they just flee their positions, and that that vehicle was actually recovered back to the Syrian base. But the blame was put on the crew because of the fact that they had their hatches up. So when the missile hit the 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 vehicle. It didn't go up, as we see in some videos, when the turret completely flames out with all the ammunition blowing off. But they, they, looked, they looked at it, and they didn't have the cover down. So that means it disengages the whole defensive air suite. So there's no jamming happen, which normally when the store box, so the store is part of the defense air suites on the T-90. They usually uh, optically sort of jam them and then send the missile off to the Hulu, really. But... Um, because they didn't, and they were careless with a threat, they, they were able to get hit and compromise their patrol with the T90 as well. So they, um, like user, much, user error, essentially. Pretty much, pretty much that. And that's down to training as well. And then that's, you need to know your enemy, who you're up against, what training they've had, are they professional soldiers or are they conscripts, you know? 
Right. So, yeah, I, you would you would like to think that if we were going up against Russians, that the, the people they've got crewing their their T90s or their more expensive platforms, uh, they're much the, they're contract soldiers, but they also sell an yes. awful lot of their vehicles. So, plenty of people that we would might have bought on license the T90 with a with a defensive air suite, like those Syrians, who you might find yourself up against. So, this is something that I have wondered about. So, the, the survivability. When you're thinking about things like retro-reflective lasers, is that is that what they are? The suite that you have on some tanks that can allow you to spot optics before they're used, and then the automatic slewing systems that are on some tanks. So yeah. something fires off, and that tank automatically slews onto where the where the shot came from. Two yeah. things that that I would be worried about, and something that I've thought about is what if you could what if you could remote the clue if you could have the missile on a stand. You know, 30 meters away from your location, and you could potentially have the the clue on the back side of a hill on the reverse slope, and you could be on the forward facing slope. Sorry, the other way around. You could have the missile launcher on the reverse, and you could be on the forward facing slope. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, you've got the Russians where they've got their Tiger M system, where they've got the anti tank missiles on a on the Tiger M, and they can ha- then run a cable running down. So, where they fire their missile from, would not necessarily be exactly where they that it's being operated from. Uh, so you could have a, it could be something that you could work with the javelin system. Like you could have just a launch unit and then have a command launch unit set offset. Yeah. That could be something that I think they could work towards. As in, like obviously you could have the launch unit being a fire and forget type of system and then actually have a command launch unit where it's actually using the seeker to do all the actual visual side of it offset. And then using a cable or potentially something wireless, whatever technology is there. But then, then anything you make wireless, is then not going to have be as passive yeah. as in not like giving off signals. So ideally, you're going to need to have a hard line in between that launch unit to the command launch unit, and and that could very much improve the survivability of the user. Where and that could be used utilized like you said on one side of a feature to the other side of the feature or in, in, like from one side of a building to another side of a building so you, you're not engaging directly and and as this technology is coming through like you say is in like once they know they've been locked onto they're going to start firing round straight back in that direction and so you want to try and mitigate that as much as we could do and hopefully we start seeing more of this technology coming through like that we've already seen the russians brought out and that that would massively go in our favour. The, the javelin, because it's a fine forget system, as you know, with that they got it like I mentioned before, you're not you're not uh, slaved to that missile as it's in flight. Once you've got that that lock, this is where it comes down to sort of your, your personal camera concealment as well and thinking about the thermal concealment. Once it's fired, then technically you you could just you can uh, have your survivability and move straight away. Because with the you mentioned with the the the, the, the tank would slew its turret round to where it's been fired from. I think they usually pick up some form of laser or radar, like I mentioned with the old Russian style, the Soviet style of missiles like AT4. That would be a laser riding laser riding missile or a radar riding missile. So it's going to give some signature, so it knows it's been painted that vehicle. That's when it swings round. However, with the javelin, it is a, a passive weapon system. Yes, sir, isn't it? It's yeah, it's not giving off any signature at all but there's other weapon systems out there that do, do exactly the same thing and that's all technology bro. and that's what their main threat is to them is their own weapon systems really looking at that and i think with the defense aid suites that they're not all they're not all expecting top attack 
So they're not all facing up. They're looking at the likely threat, which is going to be uh, RPG, a, an RPG or another tank round, be a kinetic energy, a fin stabilised discarding sable coming in at them, or a hesh round. I mean, that's their main threat to try and de- to deter that. But uh, top attacks, the only way, and that's why air is so effective. Aircraft, they have the is it is a brimstone, you know, and hellfire that, that destroys all armor, and that's their biggest threat. So we need to be more uh, thinking the same as. The, the top and a, another weapon system that's really good at the moment and uh, it's got four different types of missiles is the spike which is an israeli weapon system and there's all sorts of stuff if you research that it's quite quite amazing the, the spike missile family of what their capabilities as well and it's up there uh, with one of the best and their survivability is there as well but you, you're at that range if we're going to be doing it if we've got the survivability and the standoff we're at, at least a few kilometers away from that armor and they're looking for a big a big hot thing through their thermal they're not going to see a little operator up in the in a woodblock or whatever up in a building but it's interesting no electric vehicles brian start delving into the electric vehicle side of things so electric electrification is uh, basically especially coming down into an airborne role we need to be thinking more maximizing our survivability and also maximizing the surprise that we have on that effect on the ground so I've been like putting forward about ideas of electric quads, for example, because what's the point in having a quad when you when you hit the ground, yet you can still be heard for, for many kilometres? So you need to make sure that when you hit the ground that your uh, acoustic signature is an absolute minimum and so that you can cut around that battlefield silently and go around exactly where you want, when you want, without being heard. And, and you can then go much closer to the enemy with the quad like carrying all the heavy equipment without risk of being detected so this is like the thought process that i think that we need to be going into is in like that side of things and also looking at the uh, weapons platforms as well so you've got things like the nicola reckless which is a electric weapons platform that can do all of these things that we've been talking about as well like having a having it offset so you can have a a vehicle that is borderline autonomous and also be able to like punch that forward and also have that really low acoustic signature and utilizing that weapons platform to cut around without being heard and minimizing also the thermal signature as well and so it's things that i think this is a direction that we need to be going for as as a modern fighting force is detracting from the internal combustion engine and going towards electrification uh, and and i think like that's that's the way forward i think that it's going to best suited for us so essentially we're, we're we're missing a trick by I not so. investing in electric engines for military purposes because i yes i can't imagine i or rather i would imagine an awful lot of there's an awful lot of high level reasons why electric vehicles would be good in terms of maintenance to them being a lot simpler because once you actually once you've trained people, there's fewer parts in an electric engine than there is in an internal combustion engine. So there's all sorts of different reasons why that's better and they can last longer. But from a low-level tactical point of view, they're better as well because of thermal signature and because we just need ones with the endurance. And that's probably the one thing that's missing at the moment. Yeah, so this is something that you're saying, obviously, the, the biggest factor restraining us is the fact of the battery one of the good things that we have got going in the, at the moment is the the way the electric car market is absolutely taking off and the battery technology is going through the roof. But alongside that, using electricity is also bringing other things that we can think about and actually fueling the vehicle 
outside of like just getting fuel to your to to your pla- weapon platform what you can do is start thinking about actually getting electricity from renewable sources like from from solar or wind when if you ever need to sort out from a fob or you could potentially be using like the local electric grid if that's that's at all possible there's and then you've got bringing in also batteries for hot swap type battery where you can do a one-for-one batteries and change those quite quickly we need to be thinking about the electrification of this because because the acoustic signature is something that we just haven't really been thinking too much about and as an airborne asset we want to make sure that we're we're hidden for as long a period as possible absolutely i think is a, is a really interesting and excellent angle to add to the, the debate over how soon defense should be switching to electric vehicles because i think a lot of people will be thinking of it purely from a, an environmental point of view which is important clearly i think a lot of people just won't have considered particularly the thermal thing which you know as soon as you think about it, it makes sense you know, obviously, yes. the internal combustion engine gives off heat. It combusts, whereas there'd be way less heat, I imagine, given off by a, an electric motor. I mean, there's still oh, going to yeah, be friction yeah. in there. There's still going to be heat. But... but especially for this day and age of anti-tanking, every vehicle, majority of vehicles have got an advanced set of thermal reckon, uh, thermal imagery. And then if we are wanting to move about and mask ourselves, like, uh, like Mon said, then having a, a low thermal signature vehicle to cut about the battle space because remember they're just looking for another tank or another mm. large vehicle that's what they're looking for which has been sat in the sun all day long all right you have some poly poly plastic uh, covering on it it's perfect right that's what you want with nice thermal sheet and you give you a low signature quiet and you'll be able to move in and out of potential sort of firing points which i, I think i think that side of thing is, is ideal for for anti-tanking but it's got a long way to go. Going back to the actual electric vehicles and that, yeah, there's so many different advantages that we've not even like been thinking about that could also p- double up. For for example, you've got the battery pack. If you're able to change that battery pack underneath the electric vehicle, you could turn that into a V-shaped hole quite quite easily. Like if you look on the base of a, like a Tesla vehicle, for example, it's a, just a big, massive load of metal underneath the vehicle you just turn that into a slight v and then you, you you're, you're you're doubling up your your power storage there for also a v-shaped under armor protection and so you're hitting the weight there is not only just dead weight of like what you would normally have having having a big bit of metal just there useless you could almost have the battery pack that is doubling up as also protection so you could utilize all every single gram of weight that is on that vehicle so yeah we, we need to be looking at this and and in an airborne role the motors are a lot smaller you don't have the big massive internal combustion engines like located so then it's easier to have just the uh, seat in space and then also just the underside like taking that so you, you can really think about having more platforms per airframe as well so that, that's another thing for us to be thinking about hmm. Or more ammunition. Or, 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 yeah, just having the space for ammunition, yeah, potentially. It's, but, you know, this is this is the mindset that I think that we need to be looking at. So, the, so I'll reiterate, this is like the, the one that's probably gone the furthest with this is Nikola Motors with the uh, Reckless vehicle. And they've, if you if you look at those online and that, they, they've got some uh, really good technology coming through. Well, we're going to cut off Corporal Munts and Sergeant Spence there. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Tea Toast and Tactics. Hope you enjoyed learning about destroying tanks, and we look forward to catching you next time. Oh, and please remember, you can rate us on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts.
Thanks again. See you soon.